Hello, I'm David Moskrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. As the coronavirus pandemic continues, a mutual aid movement known as caremongering has emerged in Canada. The endeavor is encouraging and welcome. Caremongers aim to connect helpers with those who need help. They coordinate online and offline to provide services, deliveries, and information for their communities, and especially for the marginalized and vulnerable. This type of movement, however, is not new. Mutual aid and solidarity have long been practiced, especially in racialized, disabled, and indigenous communities. And much of the work that is being done now, however, is undertaken because state shortcomings and failures necessitate it. Moreover, the effort in its present form may not be sustainable. On this episode of Open Debate, I talk to international development scholar Dr. Yvonne Sue about the history, possibilities, and limits of caremongering. The question before us is, what can caremongering do for us, and what can't it? So let's start with a question that's slightly related to what we're talking about, and then we'll get down to business. How are you doing? I'm doing well, David. How are you? Same as ever, but <laughs> inside. <laughs> Trying to survive this as everybody is. Well, I, I found that my life is uh, almost exactly the same, except for it's all inside. Because I'm, for the moment, lucky that I can do my job from, from home. Uh, but I'm also high risk, as I've mentioned before, so I'm trying mm-hmm. to I'm trying to embrace the inside rule and uh, adapt. So far, so good. So we're all trying to uh, do our part to protect you, and and me doing my part and uh, and and to help protect everyone else too. I mean, I think I, I mean to sort of set up what we're going to talk about. Uh, we are now embracing the idea of public duty and public responsibility so that we can protect ourselves, but also so that we can protect everyone else. Uh, we owe it to ourselves, but we owe it to the entire community. I mean, we ought not to mm-hmm. harm anyone if we can help it, at least. And and so, so yeah, the, the hardest struggle so far, I think, for me has been, well, aside from figuring out what I'm going to do for work once my postdoc expires in the summer, I, <laughs> is finding the beer that I want. So I, I'm I'm profoundly privileged. Yeah, I mean, all my problems are backloaded to August. <laughs> I think a lot of people are feeling the same. That um, it's uh, it's going to be a long ride, and perhaps that's the new normal, and that's the new anxiety people are um, dealing with. Whereas I the think so. One was more short lived. I, I think so, and and I found that, I mean, I, I spend a lot of my day checking in with people, and a lot of my day co- coordinating with people to help find help here and there for for my community. Uh, but to bridge into the the conversation today, yeah, this is being formalized by by many through caremongering movements across the country. And this isn't new, but it's welcome. The question is, uh, is it sustainable? So let's start here. What What is caremongering and where do we typically see this sort of thing practiced? Well, caremongering is very simple. It's about um, helping out your neighbors and friends and sometimes complete strangers. And I would say this is where it departs from what people usually do. So caremongering is, t- t- is kind of like a... Um, uh, 
crisis response, mutual aid, community solidarity. And like you mentioned, other groups have practiced this traditionally, and we see it spring up uh, after disasters or in the face of a crisis all across the world. So exactly, it's not new. I think the new thing is the fact that uh, in Canada, it's changing. So it's a network of people and they're helping sometimes complete strangers. And that's where um, it gets very interesting because typically you help your friends. Like you were saying, you have friends that you know that need help or could uh, you have things that you can offer and then you make a connection and you help them. Uh, in the case of care mongering, which was invented as a way to combat fear mongering, right? A group of women um, right after um, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic decided that they want to do something positive and spread kindness and help people organize and connect people. So they started this Facebook group for Toronto for a care mo- that was titled Care Mongering. And actually to date, there's now 65, over 65 care mongering groups. So if you search up Facebook um, care mongering, You'll see all types of Kamong groups pop up across lots of locations. Ones at Cape Breton, uh, Kamloops, like lots in Ontario. So it's definitely picking up. And there's a membership of over 170,000 people. So it's extraordinary to see all these people come together and form and be part of these networks. Um, and I think I do have to say that we do have to give a shout out to the Asian community because they actually did at the very beginning of the COVID-19 breakout in Canada, small groups organized on WeChat, a Chinese social media platform to arrange volunteers to help grocery shop and run errands uh, for those who had um, voluntarily self-isolated or were in quarantine. So that got a little bit of news coverage, but in not nearly as enough as um, the caremongering movement that we're seeing now. Which is especially remarkable since, well, and and let's get into this by way of talking about who's doing this work, who traditionally does it and who's doing it now. It's particularly remarkable in in Asian communities because we've seen a rise in anti-Asian racism uh, and bigotry because of this, which uh, is astounding. And if you're, I don't, I wonder if anyone listening to this is part of that, but you never know. If you are part of that, give your head a shake. If you know someone who's part of it, give their head a shake by distance. (laughs) And don't go anywhere near them. (laughs) Maybe that's a good standing rule if they're the kind of person that does that sort of thing. But but also, I I wrote about this for the Washington Post, and I talked to a couple of folks, including people involved uh, in Ontario with the uh, Disability Justice Network of Ontario and the Hamilton mm-hmm. Center for Civic Inclusion. And they were saying that, you know, these communities that are practicing this are in some cases themselves vulnerable, mar- marginalized, and so on. So the people doing this work are often not only taking on that burden, but they're taking on that burden on top of existing commitments and burdens that that they're either forced to or asked to meet, which to me seems mm-hmm. doubly remarkable. Yes, for sure. And I think that's where sometimes there is tension, because as this has picked up as a trend, people in those communities often feel that, you know, perhaps their way of organizing or how they have done things have been hijacked or misused or or there's no credit to them. Um, And many people who are doing this care mongering trend, for them, it is likely a one off uh, transactional kind of fleeting experience. We'd like to think that it's sustainable and it's deep and that 
people helping are going to continue to do it for months. Um, but looking at past disasters, looking at history, it's clear that often, and, and this might be an exception, and we're not sure yet, and it's hard to predict, but in the past, it often is an immediate surge of uh, interest to help and people coming together. A lot of it is in a weird way through self-interest because um, when we're facing a crisis, we don't want to be alone, right? We want to be helping other people. We want to be together. And that actually helps us feel alive and it helps us feel strong. So in a way, some people are doing this because for those reasons and they're very you know, natural instincts uh, without recognizing that um, this is a more short-term um, transactional thing. Whereas these other communities that have traditionally practiced it um, it's more sustainable. They've got a lot of different mechanisms, coping strategies, uh, techniques um, that they've developed over time. Uh, and perhaps those are the communities we need to listen more to, to find ways to make this sustainable if we can. Because obviously, if this is going to last until July or August, and it's April now, uh, having this movement run out of steam too soon is going to be damaging to people who really need the assistance. So two things that are coming out of that. First, uh, I want to talk about your work and what you've found. And yeah. second, I want to talk a little bit about ways that maybe the the state can adopt some of these practices. Because I've heard people say, we're doing this work. We're proud to do this work. We shouldn't have to do this work. Uh, I'll also throw a quick note out but say that uh, we should very quickly disabuse people of the notion that white folks in the suburbs invented caring in the last couple of weeks, <laughs> right? I mean, I've seen some of the talk about this is makes it seem as if we've just discovered mutual aid and solidarity in March. And of course, it was discovered by the suburbanites. And, and as, as you mentioned, the communities have been doing this a long time. But yeah. let's start with, with your work and what you've discovered. Tell me a little bit about the ARC of what happens immediately and then what happens in the long run uh, during and after a disaster. Yeah, so my PhD research looked at Typhoon Haiyan that struck the Philippines in November in 2013, uh, and it was considered the strongest storm ever recorded. Uh, so you can Anyone? imagine it had, uh, at that time. Oh, yeah, really? Okay. It was, yeah, it was the, there was an eight meter tall storm surge that Lord. wiped out a lot of Tacloban City, which was in like the epicenter of it. Um, and about a lot of people just re reported their homes being completely damaged. Uh, a lot of people died, of course. The official number was 6,000, but people on the ground uh, feel like it's much closer to 10,000 to 20,000. So it was definitely a very large scale, very damaging uh, disaster. So um, the idea would be that after such a disaster, people are going to come together and, and help, each other, help each other. And of, of course they did, right? In the immediate days right after, imagine there is no government help. There is no international aid that can even come in during such a time. Because especially in the Philippines, um, it's a bunch of small islands. So you actually have a very difficult time in, in terms of transport in general. So there were a bunch of people, well, most people that were left to fend for themselves um, in that first week where there was no aid available. Um, so people had shared stories of how they came together. And there's this Filipino term called bayanihan, which means um, kind of mutual aid, right? Collective labor, um, helping each other out. That uh, kind of translates to our care mongering in a sense. Hmm. Um, 
And the very traditional indigenous principle um, is this idea that about 20 people or so will come together and they will um, lift a, a bamboo hut, right, from one location, let's just say that's at risk of a landslide, to a new location. So really this idea of the community coming together, very much like barn raising in America, right? So after a disaster, or after Typhoon Haiyan, people shared food, people shared shelter. Um, actually, you saw small security guard groups coming together to patrol the area because there were rumors that people had broken out of the prisons or that there was just danger, right? So there are lots of great examples of the community coming together to help each other out. Um, so this, these are the stories that I heard in the news, right? There was also lots of stories about uh, uh, Filipinos who were abroad sending money home. So before I went to the Philippines, two years after, I heard all these really positive stories. So you, as you can imagine, I was ready to go to the field and kind of hear these stories again, right? When I interviewed mm -hmm. people and I had 500 surveys and interviewed about 72 uh, interviews, right? And I was very surprised to hear the stories that were very different than what the news had reported. People said that um, after the first week or so, um, the government aid did start to come, and at first it was blanket um, aid. So everybody got the same thing, right? doesn't matter what income I had or how much damage my house experienced or if I lost a loved one. Like, we all got the same food, um, same hygiene kits, etc. right? And then a few weeks later, when more specific and targeted aid came in that was only supposed to be for the most vulnerable and most affected, that's when... Um, conflict and competition and issues started to come up. So very naturally in the beginning, everybody works together. And then as more resources um, come in, but also resources that are becoming scarce, uh, people start to fight again. And in this case, in during uh, after Typhoon Haiyan, people told me stories of their neighbors um, tattletailing on them. So I, you know, it would be like, oh, don't give any aid to Dave. He's He's got a nice house. He's got a cousin that works in America, uh, and he's well off. He, uh, he's actually not that, he's not suffering, really, from the disaster. Don't, don't go to his house to offer him aid, right? Neighbors telling the groups not to help this particular or that particular person. Oh, telling NGOs. Oh, telling NGOs, so I see. A little bit worse than that. So literally oh, just like tattletailing on your neighbors uh, and uh, saying they don't deserve official assistance. Because right. the idea would, of course, be that if your neighbor doesn't get the assistance, right, you might get the assistance. Right. It's a zero-sum game. It is, unfortunately, a zero-sum game. Right. Um, but other things, too, that, like, you know, um, uh, neighbors stole from each other, right? Like, as resources got scarce, or you know, one, one person told me a story about how she had let 100 people evacuate to her two-story concrete house. Right. As you can imagine, um, during a disaster, a typhoon or um, with a storm surge, you'd like to get, you know, into a concrete looking sturdy house. Right. Without. Um, it, well, um, and kind of save yourself, basically. Yeah. And this um, individual told me that, yeah, she had easily welcomed people in. She was very clever because she was a businesswoman and she actually had purchased extra rice and extra food that she was hoping to sell after the typhoon knowing that people were going to need it. Um, and she had a little shop and everything. Um, and, and a lot of people did not know the magnitude of the storm. 
So they weren't, they weren't expecting that it was going to be so severe. So imagine this woman, her house is full of food. She has uh, all these evacuees and she's very happy to, to distribute that food and, and whatnot. And she's, she's very much being altruistic. And then she tells me that near the end of that week, right? Like people started not just, you know, sharing the food. They started stealing her food. They started taking her furniture, right? So that's kind of when you start hearing the, the uglier side of, of these types of things. Um, and to relate it to COVID-19, I mean, we're not, it's not a natural disaster. It's not in, gonna, in this way. But what we might start to find is that as, you know, the government makes these announcements about EI or as somebody loses a job or your friends start to lose a job, previously you might very, you know, freely share the job postings, right? Now people might start to not share that. They might need to hoard that information or the information about EI or benefits um, so that less people can get it. Nobody likes to say this yes. or admit it, but these are the things that might be happening in people's minds. Well, so it seems to me that that a lot hinges on whether or not we see things as zero sum or not. That if you yeah. if you look and say, okay, well, at the moment, I'm happy to connect, I'm happy to provide because there's still enough to go around. But if I look at a job and say, well, if I share that job, then I might not get it, so I'm not going to share it. If I facilitate this delivery of food or whatever it might be, well, then I might not get it myself, so I'm not going to facilitate that. Uh, that is Now, if we can keep relatively stable levels of supplies, that shouldn't happen here, right? I think so, and I think that's the rational kind of approach. But as you saw right in the beginning of all of this with the stockpiling of toilet paper, people weren't being told that there was a paper toilet paper shortage or that uh, the suppliers in Canada, which produce our toilet paper, were going to stop or have any trouble, yet people still did it. So right. that could be an example of the zero-sum game. And I mean, as, as, as long as you see pictures of empty shelves and you see people buying these things, you're not really going to walk yourself through the logical implications or a thought process. You're probably going to run to a grocery store and do exactly the same thing, which was what we saw. And we also saw lots of, I mean, this was, I think, fairly limited antisocial behavior, but we also saw hoarding of of supplies. I mean, we saw stories of people buying, well, especially that one particular person in the U.S. buying right. remarkable amounts of hand sanitizer, and uh, he was eventually publicly shamed, shamed I think, and, and gave it up. And there was someone else in Brooklyn, I think, who was actually busted for hoarding masks, and they went and raided the place and took. And them. I do wonder if they weren't shamed. If they they probably would have continued. Oh, for sure down. they would have. I don't doubt it for a second. I mean, I, you know, part of this obviously is about, let's say the positive side of this, it's about mutual aid, it's about solidarity, it's about community. That Now that's the pro-social side. There's the anti-social side that ends up being public pressure. Uh, now, we there are limits. We can talk about what the limits of public shaming ought to be. We can talk about what the limits of, of doxing ought to be because I don't support <laughs> doxing <laughs> people uh, and, and I don't support encouraging groups to become harassing or violent against people. I, I think the last thing we need right now is to encourage mobocracy or to encourage a heavy-handed state, which is Absolutely. also a concern, especially concerns around, uh, as they intersect with concerns around surveillance 
capitalism and surveillance state. But if social norms can help police people, I think that's different because we rely on social norms to police good behavior all the time. I mean, it's in fact basically one of the foundations of community. Right? Anyone who has a family knows there's a pro-social in it, but also a sort of a social policing side to this. But beyond community, what about states? Because when I was writing the piece and interviewing uh, some folks, what I kept hearing was, again, we're happy to do this, but why isn't the government doing this? Absolutely. And I think the main thing for people to think about is that caremongers should pressure the government for more action not alleviate them from it. And that is the main concern, is that if these groups prove to be so successful and Canadians are helping each other out and neighbors have each other's back, right, do we need the state to be, to contribute as much as we're asking them to, right? That's the flip side, is that if you play up the positive aspects of community solidarity, if you play up, for example, all the people who are uh, clapping their hands around the world for the frontline workers, that's great. And that is very important that those on the front lines are getting acknowledgement and getting encouraged. At the same time, what about demanding for more supplies, more ventilators, Mm -hmm. right? What about demanding politicians to be way more accountable to those people and keeping them safe, right? So that's the flip side of this. On one hand, uh, it's great to be positive and and clap and, and sing and be in solidarity, Uh, and send this positive energy. The other hand, it could be distracting to the political action and the demands and the anger that that should be there. And I think that's what we're starting to see across the world as different levels of um, uh, infection are taking place. I mean, for example, three weeks into the lockdown in Italy, people have stopped singing on their balconies, Mm -hmm. right? And I think that's a sign because, you know, they're, they're done with that phase and now they're angry and they're upset and they want the government to take more action. And, and so the question then becomes, what does that action look like? Now, part of it is pressing industry to produce. So we're seeing mm-hmm. that already. We're seeing industry either voluntarily or through pressure produce essential supplies, whether it's hand sanitizer from, from breweries or from um, industrial manufacturers or it's masks and ventilators. We saw GE workers protest and demand that the company produce ventilators. So we're seeing pressure and action on the industrial side. Uh, on the state side, in Canada at least, we're seeing now we're starting to see some money flow. We had a first effort We had a second legislative effort, and now we're about to have a third legislative effort as governments figure out uh, how exactly to to provide money to people, and there's a bunch of different mechanisms. But uh, can states uh, coordinate fine-grained efforts? Because it strikes me that there's always going to be a need for some community action because the state just can't coordinate at the fine-grained distinction of your neighbor needs X and you have it or know someone who does. I mean, it's one thing to say we need to make sure everyone has money. Yep. That's obvious to me. And there are problems with the emergency response from the government that not everyone exactly has access to it, but we're, we're, that's ideally going to be figured out. And at the moment speed, as we as we're hearing, and I think it's true, speed beats perfection, but presumably there's only so much you can do with programming at some point, the fine-grained distinction at the neighborhood level 
is, is going to be necessary, and that's always going to be true. Absolutely, and, and this is what community solidarity mutual aid is supposed to do and has traditionally existed, is to fill the gaps. So a good example of how the two can complement each other um, is the Quarantine Act. Right. So when Trudeau announced the quarantine act and they said that people had to go directly from the airport right to their homes, they should not stop at grocery stores. They should not stop to pick up anything else on their way. They really need to head home and quarantine and need to do it in a private car. Right. They, he said that the government was able to coordinate, coordinate some of that for those who couldn't do it. But this is a great opportunity. And, and he did ask uh, for neighbors and relatives and friends to step in and help. Right. And I think that's an example of making it a big difference. So then somebody who uh, might not have called on a relative or whatnot to assist and would have just gone willy nilly to a store without really realizing that uh, they could be um, asymptomatic uh, carriers and infecting those in these small communities near the border uh, can now call on a family member or a relative. You know, so in that way, Trudeau was setting the social norm for assistance for these people coming back. Um, that complements the state action as opposed to right. alleviating it or, you know, it makes it easier for people to carry out the quarantine act when um, neighbors and family members know that that is a role that they need to play for these people to make it easier and to prevent them from stopping and shopping themselves. Right. Because I mean, I I'm watching a lot of these, these orders go out and I'm looking at public health officials begging people to do X, Y, or Z. And my mm -hmm. response, my immediate response is, yes, you ought to follow that. My secondary response is, well, if you can't, what do we expect, right? I mean, I, I, I was trying to, I'm high risk, as I've mentioned, so I'm stuck inside. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon, and I've accepted that. Uh, I've got to eat. So I was looking around for groceries, and... The grocery delivery were were limited, and I'm and I'm trying to limit the number of deliveries I get because mm -hmm. the fewer deliveries, the better. So uh, I placed a grocery delivery for pickup that was I think eight days after the delivery order, or the the sorry the the purchase order. So that's manageable enough. Eight days I can live with, but I couldn't go get those. I needed someone yeah. from my community to do that. I was lucky that I could easily find that and I'd had offers mm -hmm. but we ought not to assume that everyone is so privileged and fortunate right and, and I think that's the degree to which we need to be thinking about whether or not what the limits are to to programming and, and how we can extend care mongering or mutual aid to everybody so I would say that the um, the difference is that you're asking for help now when a lot of goodwill is still there right I think it gets much more difficult to ask for help the 10th time or the 12th time or yes. the 20th time, especially for people like you or in worse situations like that really cannot leave their house or do not even have the money or the means to carry out various things. So that's, I think, where the limits of care mongering are. And that's when you do need the state. And Justin Trudeau, you know, he did make that announcement, the $9 million to help seniors, right? And he made... And that does involve um, grocery runs and other types of assistance. And I think that's really important. And the state needs something like that because it's going to really affect people's mental health when they start asking for help and they don't get it. 
right? And if you right. look, and I've looked on these groups, and many people have made offers. So, for example, I can be like, oh, I have a car. I'd like, I'm very happy to go do grocery runs for anybody who really needs it. You'll see a post like that, very popular, right? You'll see 10 or 15 comments underneath. That's great. And then a couple hours later, you'll get an update that says like offer has resolved or offer has been fulfilled or offer is taken up. Right. And then they'll say like, this was amazing. The response I got was overwhelming. However, you know, I could, I could only help 10 people and I've gotten those 10 people. Right. So this is that kind of the limits that we're seeing the wall that it hits. Cause you know, how many people can one person go for a grocery run for? And then right. going back to going uh, going back to what you said earlier about the various groups that have coping mechanisms and that have done this for a while, they're highly aware of this kind of fatigue, right? They're highly aware that um, you can't count on one person or limited resources to su support somebody. You need a group of people, and this is where the idea of neighborhood pods uh, comes in. And I think neighborhood pods, which is a part, a smaller part of the caremongering movement, I would say, is a much more sustainable model. Right. And that's when you perhaps have 10 people and this is hyper localized. So we're talking about the same street, the same blocks. Right. Yeah. Like it can't so even, can you, can't even be bigger than a wider community. Right. So, so run me through the, the details of what a neighborhood pod looks like. Yeah. So a neighborhood pod is like, is, is kind of taking this idea of caramongering, but really um, localizing it to say, again, the same street or the couple of blocks. And, you know, people who are that neighborly will know people who are in need. So for example, we can have a neighborhood pod around you, right? So let's just say there are five or 10 of your neighbors or friends who live in either the same building or around the area that know uh, that you can't go outside, and but they also know your needs. Right. Uh, and instead of one person going and being your only person that goes and gets groceries for you or runs any errand for you, there are 10 people or five people you can call on. Yeah. So, so that's the end. So this would apply to seniors or apply to single moms with disabilities, anybody who has self-identified as being more vulnerable and the community has decided to help out. It also doesn't have to be uh, centered around marginalized groups. It could really just be a neighborhood come together saying that this block is going to help each other. And that, that movement's underway too. I mean, I, I, I see that uh, Amara Posian, mm -hmm. who I talked to when I wrote the Washington Post piece, is part of a group that's put together a kit, in fact, that mm -hmm. you can go and download. Mm -hmm. And if anyone wants access to that, they can either look her up or, or send me a note and I'm happy to provide it. But this is a sort of how-to guide to perform those actions. Uh, is that more sustainable? I think that's more sustainable, mainly also because there are not only tips and guidelines, but also rules and like things to watch out for. Something concerning that I see on these um, caremongering Facebook groups is people who are reaching out for mental health support. And you have other people volunteering to say that, you know, I'd love to talk to you. Um, I don't have a background. <laughs> Right. in this but i love you know give me a call let's chat like here to support you and i think that's when we start edging into some more potentially dangerous territory right or other people just offering types of advice that they might not um have the professional background or real know-how to especially because some of these posts on these groups are quite desperate you have people literally saying they can't pay for this they've lost their job they're, they completely don't know what to do and how to survive for the next couple of months. So people in such vulnerable um, situations 
they, they're really seeking advice. So you, when you see a bunch of people kind of jump on these threads um, without a real understanding of first who they are, what background they right. have, and what intentions they have, of course, we want to think that they all have good intentions, and they probably do. A lot of these just end up being unintentional consequences. Um, so that's kind of when it starts becoming unsustainable or worrying. Whereas within a neighborhood pod, within smaller groups, um, likely not strangers, right? Um, you can trust the advice, you can trust the um, resources or um, even just the practices. So for example, anybody dropping off groceries to you, right, should be aware that they have to probably wear gloves or sanitize or be very careful with the groceries that they're giving to you. They shouldn't, you know, pick up the groceries, go to their friend's house, have a beer, hang no, out, right. let it, let it, let it, uh, de-thaw, let it thaw, right? And then bring right. it to your house. And then, of course, risk you being exposed to all of these other things, right? So the, that level of training, that level of awareness comes with something that requires more commitment like a neighborhood pod, but doesn't require that much commitment when it comes to just commenting on a Facebook group. And I mean, some of these groups are like 30,000 people. So you really have no idea who they are or even if they're in that community. I mean, some of them, I, I've gone through them when I was, was researching the piece and, and obviously some of them had a couple, a handful of people. And you could tell that people knew one another. And as you mentioned, others are, are massive. But at that point, it starts to look like an online forum, like you would find on Reddit almost. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's so removed by that point, which gives you the, the power of reach. But yeah. the trade-off seems to be, as you mentioned, you're now dealing with strangers and it's harder to control the quality of information, the quality of potential care. Yeah. And if you go through some of those groups and their um, their about us section, they do ha- they do set rules. And they do try to say like no medical advice, yes. <laughs> right? Should be given. Um, only um, no racism, you know, no discrimination, you know, all th- those typical rules that you find. But of course, it's very difficult to enforce. If these pages are getting like 200, even 500 or so posts a day or comments, even having a team of 10 administrators isn't going to be able to capture all of those things. So it's a, it's a fast-paced moving thing. And the fact, the fact that it's on social media is what, again, changes it from um, the previous community solidarity that we might have seen in other communities or other disasters or crises. Right. Uh, when... In the work you've seen, is there a typical size for a group that's for a sustainable group? Is is there a model of sustainability that we could say, if you're going to do this and you want it to last, here are the details of what that looks like? Or, or do we have that fine-grained data? I don't think we have that, at least not significant empirical evidence for that. But I think a lot of research on communities or on trust or how many people you can have in your network, right, caps that about at about 15 to 30. Because hmm. that's just how many people you can keep track of and, and trust, right? right? And these are usually, these are people you know, as well, opposed to, to, are you to saying being strangers. My, my 1,500 Facebook friends <laughs> aren't close, meaningful. I sometimes I scroll through Facebook and think, who is that person? <laughs> Well, there's something about my research also talks about the difference between access and mobilization of resources. So, for example, you have access to that many people, right? Technically, you have access to the resources, to their goodwill, to their support, to their money, right? But how much you're able to actually mobilize in your time of need 
is mm-hmm. very different. So yes. if you were to do an experiment, if you were to make a post on Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is and say, I need 50 bucks stat. Yes. <laughs> we, we, you, it's real, you know, you would think that you might get a lot because you have such a big network, but the number of people who will actually do that, or even a grocery run or even, you know, resources, uh, is very, is often much more limited. And this is what I found in my research in the Philippines. A lot of people had access to a bunch of people and even politicians and people in positions of power, but their ability to mobilize that resources resource into actual material goods uh, is very limited. And presumably, as you've mentioned, that that mobilization becomes compromised as the crisis wears on. Yes. And I think that's one of the pieces that perhaps the media or people aren't really talking about is the sustainability and also the long run aspects of it. Um, One of the concerns that my research highlights is the romanticization of community solidarity of mutual aid. Right mm-hmm. in the Philippines, we saw it highly romanticized. The word by Nihan was used a lot. Uh, again, was it a hashtag? word of mutual. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. hashtag, like the words resilience, this idea of the neighbors helping each other, like in a weird way, it's kind of like um, getting telling the victim, the survivors to kind of, you know, pull up their bootstraps and deal with it themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. It hasn't gone as far in Canada so far. I think people have a clear handle. They don't think that it's um, they know the trend is growing, but I don't think anybody is too fooled to think that the community support is what's going to get them through. Right. We do have our eyes on the government and government aid. The one danger is that government officials can start to manipulate their discourse and use these ideas to alleviate some pressure on them and some attention on them. So um, if you look at some of the announcements that Trudeau has made, and and there was a CBC article that talked about this, he likes to use the word like, we're in this together, right? The government has your back, right? Team Canada. Uh, Team Canada, right? You're going to get assistance from your neighbors, from your friends, right? Like ask for help. These are all, you know, things that are happening and things that are important. But what, where you draw the line is perhaps an over-reliance on this idea that the community is there for you always and the community is what's going to get you through this. Yeah. Whereas I mean, you know I, that it's not. The messaging to me is important and I support it and I've been happy to see it. But if, as you say, if it leads to the government to abrogate its duty, then, then you're in trouble, right? I mean, and I, the piece I wrote for the Washington, I, now I didn't know much about this until recently and, and I, when I researched it for the piece, I decided, well, I'll write about caremongering, but I want to raise the questions that we raise on this episode. And In fact, I talked to you, mm-hmm. uh, thank God, uh, to help get perspective on that. <laughs> so my, my piece was, this is good, this isn't new, we could use this. It doesn't, it doesn't uh, necessarily go far enough when the government to do more. Oh, and we need to build in uh, better social institutions better, a livable wage, universal accessible health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so that we can minimize the need for this work in the first place. Mm-hmm. And the piece that I wrote was shared uh, quite widely, including by politicians. Yeah. Among them, uh, uh, President Barack Obama and uh, Prime Minister Trudeau. And my first reaction was, well, that's fantastic, because I certainly want to get this far and wide. My second reaction was, I wonder if they read to the end. <laughs> and you you know, because that- it was critical, right? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't just a hashtag feel-good piece. It was a critique. 
Yes. And I think that you will notice that also when they shared it, right, their comments were mainly and just on the positive aspects. Yes. Right. So they didn't, there was, there was no but in uh, what they were sharing. It was just like, look at this. This is what we need. Uh, care mongering is going to help us. Right. I always, I always have mixed feelings when politicians share my work. My, my initial feeling is usually, oh, hey, look, I'm having influence that, and that's very, very quickly replaced by, oh, wait a second. <laughs> I've become a tool. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think it is important uh, that, because then what it means is that the piece gets with the, you know, the comments about limitations and whatnot gets shared with a wider audience. So I think you're, that's, you're a, that's a, so I, I am optimistic. Your optimism is welcomed. <laughs> yes. But I think that's, I guess that is the tip of the iceberg of what you're, what we're talking about though, right? So yeah. imagine Obama and Justin Trudeau really lean into those narratives, right? And this is what we saw in the Philippines after Typhoon Haiyan. Right. It really was this idea that the community can help each other. Look how fast the Filipino uh, diaspora uh, donated money. Look how fast they're recovering. Right. All this positive attention. And, and President Aquino at the time actually asked the media to share more uplifting stories, stories hmm. that would move each other to action, stories of community coming together. Right. Of course, hopefully, we don't have that in Canada, where the state is telling the media what stories to share. But that's the danger, is that if we romanticize it, if it's so positive, if we're really focused on um, the community helping each other out as a model, right, we lose the opportunity to uh, kind of do what you had mentioned, which was build better social structures, right? Reflect on what needs to change. So in the future, we don't have to don't have to rely so much on caremongering that caremongering is just a plus right it's just nice whereas for some groups and some populations this movement actually has been quite a lifeline for them which i think is not a good thing at all you shouldn't well, beg to strangers you don't you shouldn't have to beg to strangers online right right to be able to pay your rent and afford food like there should be government um, assistance for that. I mean, it's not, there's no dignity in that. Exactly, it, it, is what I'm trying to get at. It reminds me of those feel good, quote unquote, feel good stories about a GoFundMe that raises money for someone's operation. And my response is always, are you kidding me? Yes. Uh, yeah. This is not a feel good story. This is, it is, it is utterly barbaric that someone should have to plead with strangers online to raise the funds for a life-saving operation. It's criminal. That that's yep. the case, right? I mean, yep. and that's my worry about is, is that once caremongering movements and so on become captured by either by media in, in a clickbait sense or by politicians who want to try to to mobilize it to placate or pacify a population or make it seem like things are better than they are. Once that happens, then in fact, you're probably in considerable trouble. Well, of all the pieces that I've read on this, yours was the only one and first one that was critical. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, that's not, it's not good. But the, new, the media wants to cover the positive stories. That's, that's sure. the hard part about all this. And, you know, it's funny, I'm not even, my argument isn't we shouldn't enjoy ourselves or be pleased or, or say nice things about public solidarity and mutual aid i mean obviously we should but we should do it in context my argument always is is that share the thing it could be good it could be bad whatever share it but share it in context and it's the absence of the context that makes these things 
uh, potential tools for power, right? Yeah, and I think and I think that is where most of the danger lies, is how a movement like this could be um, appropriated or misused or again romanticized um, for other other agendas that we don't really know about yet. Including by people who, I mean, we mentioned this earlier, but including by people who want to claim it as their own and erase communities that have been doing this for a long time. And that was yeah. the other thing that I, I was concerned about. And when I talked to people, found that this is one of the first things they said was, this isn't new. Mm. We've been here. We've been doing this. We've been doing this because people like you... Uh, have been ignoring us, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, people yeah. people in positions of authority, people in the mainstream uh, have been ignoring these movements for years. Yeah. And now a bunch of of folks are doing it in the mainstream and, the, and they're pretending that they've invented it. And I keep coming back to this point because I think it's utterly central to the whole thing is that it is indicative of the broader problems that we face. Well, it's central also because I think some of them, in these, some of the people in these communities that have been practicing for a long time, are seeing a way watered down version of it, right? Yes. So I think that's also the unfortunate part is that instead of realizing the potential that these groups have, not just to support each other, but also to demand political action, right? Uh, we're turning it into some kind of trend where you go and you clap for people at seven thirty you know, medical um, frontline workers, but then you don't uh, write your politicians or you don't demand for them to have more protective gear, right? That's the unfortunate thing, is that uh, a lot of people who are really overwhelmed by this will go for the uh, less effort, lower hanging fruit of these types of things, as opposed to the more difficult, more time consuming work of political action uh, for actual systematic or social change. And that's the, I, I would say, the wider, more dangerous implication. It's like signing a petition online. On that note, that brings us to time. First of all, thank you very much for the interview, for the piece, and for coming on and explaining all this for me and for, for our listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And I do feel bad because I sound like a Debbie Downer, but... No, not at <laughs> I all. I think having, having a critical lens about this and thinking about the long term and the political implications is very important. There's always plenty of saccharine pick-me-ups available. It's nice to have some context for <laughs> for a change. Uh, so my thanks to you, Dr. Yvonne Sue, and, and to Mir Ahmad, who is, uh, together with me, a part uh, producing this from afar, and to our editor, and to everyone who works on this, and to everyone who listens. And uh, as always, uh, stay safe, uh, stay apart. Listen to public health officials, and if you can help others, uh, there are plenty of ways to do so. I'd encourage you to look up uh, local community groups and to consider forming your own uh, small mutual aid group if necessary. Uh, and, and together, we'll plot on through this, and then we can start to have a conversation about how we can build a society uh, that doesn't necessitate this sort of thing uh, to the extent that it does today in the aftermath of this crisis. Thanks for listening.